Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Due to popular demand, you can subscribe to Kiko's Freethinkers Forum on YouTube. You can watch all of our videos there on our YouTube platform. Now you can also subscribe and listen to any of our audio on Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public, Podvine, Podbean, Amazon, and different platforms. Please tell your friends and family, and I hope you enjoy your day, beautiful people. Good morning, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. This is episode 46, and we're joined by a very special guest. Her name is Heather Berg, and she's an assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis. And we're going to talk about her work from 2021. It's called Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. Um, I have quite a few questions um, about the book. It's a, re- a well-written book. I learned so much just um, following all the content. And um, this forum is all about education and um, having professors onto the forum is a really important part of the show. And so this is no less um, important um, bringing on Heather Berg today to talk with us about porn work, sex, labor, and late capitalism. And as far as I understand, she's working on something else as well with the sex worker left, which I don't know if we have time to talk about or not today. But I do want to say that she also earned an award, the CLR James Best Book for Academic or General Audience Award for this book, Porn Work. And um, I must say, if you guys have not read the book by um, C.L.R. James, uh, The Black Jacobins, I recommend that. It talks about the the Haitian Revolution. I had to do a lot of that with my dissertation because my first chapter was about uh, Haiti. But I wanna say, Professor Berg, welcome to the show and thanks for accepting that invitation. Thanks so much, I'm glad to be here. And yeah, it was, I think, so, so honored that the award is named after James. I just love his work. So I was like, it's such a, such a thing to, to get. Yes, absolutely. And um, again, my audience, um, they never know what to expect with these episodes. And um, it's kind of just the workings of my brain. If something interests me, um, I just really try to go for it. And I actually came across your book because I just read a lot in general. And um and I kept reading and I was like, wow, this is a really interesting book, you know, and that's the first thing I thought about. I like to read books and, um, you know, come from a PhD program and just that's all we did in the program at UT Knoxville. And so I said, I have to get this person onto the show, you know, to share more with the audience. Um, again, a beautiful cover, it's a pink cover mm-hmm. um, book. And um, I think people have misconceptions about the word porn. Um, and the relationship with porn and the rest of society. I guess my first question would be, um, where is porn work and sex work? It, are they interchangeable or are they two different things? Because I think when people hear one thing, they hear something completely different. What would mm. you say to that? Yeah, I mean, so sex work is, is an umbrella term um, that 
that sex worker organizers um, in that's often associated with the, the movement in the 1980s used to try to, uh, it, to describe various kinds of work under one term and part of the political utility of that. There were two things. One, Carol Lee, a sex worker activist who's, um, who's coined the term, um, was trying to, and I think really beautifully, successfully uh, center the work rather than um, either ideas about like who sex workers were as, as people outside of their work. So part of this um, the language that, that preceded the term sex work was, you know, prostituted people, for example, was something she was reacting against. So she wanted to talk about, you know, what it is we're actually doing, and this is sex work. Um, and then the other piece is that, that she and others hoped the term uh, as an umbrella term would undo what they call the hierarchy. So these hierarchies among sex workers, um, where, for example, porn workers have often um, been understood and sometimes understood themselves to be higher up on the hierarchy or the hierarchy than people who do in um, criminalized forms of sex work. Uh, so sex work as an umbrella term tries to undo that and, and really um, kind of unite around all of those things. And we know that you're a professor currently at Washington University. What's been your journey, um, I guess in the condensed version, if you want to, and how does your personal life intertwine with the work that you do? Like, how do you get from point A to point B? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had um, been involved in sex worker organizing before I did my PhD um, and also just yeah, involved with and, and interested in labor organizing more broadly um, and, and then pursued a PhD in feminist studies as a place that that um, really let me ask um, the kind of questions that I care most about in a way that's not confined by disciplinary boundaries. Absolutely. And um, just being in academia myself, I'm actually, I'm currently in the job market. I think a lot of my audience <laughs> knows this already um, because I've recently got a PhD and um, I was honestly hesitant. I didn't know if I was going to keep pursuing academia or not. Yeah. Um, a lot of it, is um, the political environment, honestly. Um, and I guess the question that I'm getting at is, how has your work been received in academic circles? Because I know that within your own department, it may be more receptive, but let's just say the broader university, like how do you think that your work is perceived? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think some people think it's weird <laughs> for sure, but I felt a lot of support. Um, and I, I think you know, I try to, to formulate the um I tried to write the book and just in in general and in, in publishing and when I do things like this um try to to tell a story that makes sense to people who are sitting in different places and so there's a piece of the book that uh labor historians for example have engaged with and I've been really grateful for their letting me um into their world, even though that's not my training. Um, there are other folks who do, you know, studies of digital media, for example, who um, have taken some piece and made it useful to them. So, so in that, I, I'm really grateful for that. I think in some ways, um, more than the, the porn piece, the anti-capitalist piece um, raises some heckles. And so, so if anything, that's, that's where um, I sometimes have to navigate more negative reactions. 
Yes, I was just I'm curious about that because there are not the natural contradictions that arise. Um, just the, the premise of the book is interesting. Um, you're using a Marxist lens. Um, you're using a worker. The emphasis on like Marxist terminology, like workers, dialectics. Um, yeah. A lot of terms that I think my audience, like if they're not familiar with Marxism, they may be left, I guess, in the dark a little bit. But um, it's interesting because you emphasize that throughout the book. Um, you have a lot of feminist thought that's not sex worker friendly. It's, it's, yeah. um, and, and, and that's a pretty predominant faction of people in the country. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I was guess I was kind of getting at too. I'm surprised that you, your work has gotten, I guess, a lot more positive reception in academic circles. But um, I don't know if that's because um, people are using the right gaze of feminism, that they can see that they're not as offended by that content. But just some of the people that I'm around in academia, for instance, they seem to be a lot more I guess, closed off to these disciplines, um, mm -hmm. even though we do gender studies, sexuality. But I know that there's also like levels to that, even within academia. It's like you can do things as long as you don't go too far against the status quo. Sure. And but when you start talking about Marxism, I feel like that could start to raise some eyebrows a little bit when you start because that's attacking the political status quo at that point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so yeah, I guess there's a couple of things you're talking about there at all. So, I mean, one is the the kind of anti-porn feminist response that has been hugely influential. So even people who aren't um, invested in feminist politics have absorbed anti-sex worker feminist ideas about what sex work and porn are. Um, and, and you see that. So like, again, people who aren't, you know, who aren't reading Dorkin and McKinnon, for example, like still have this idea in their head. And, and, and some of them I will never win. Um, and my, the book is not a, it's not a positive portrait of porn is, is a workplace story. So I'm not trying to, you know, I don't find the debate particularly interesting. Um, but yeah, there are people who have absolutely absorbed those ideas. And no matter what I say, I you know, could write as I did like 200 pages about how this is a mostly boring job, sometimes tedious, sometimes harmful uh, stories of workers organizing against their bosses. I could you know, write all of this and they'll still read it and sometimes do as uh, a defense of porn, which is like why, you know, it's a reading comprehension issue, but also a political one. So there's that. And so certainly that I, I encounter that. And then I think, as you say, yeah, the, the anti-capitalist piece, um, uh, you know, is uh, troubling for some in a different way. And there, you know, there's this whole other category of readers who don't have a problem with porn, but have a problem with the way I talk about managers, not the way I do, you know, the way workers in the book talk about managers. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's certainly some, something that, um, that I find, but I, I guess I'm just more interested in talking to the people who, who are willing to meet me there. I'm, I'm curious just um, because I'm familiar like with porn just as a general, just like idea and just like what happens in porn. But I think it's really cool, like just describing those working conditions because 
I think that does demystify a lot of these misconceptions about mm -hmm. um, porn. Like it's just regular work. Yeah. And I think that was um, a really important observation that I picked up through the book. Um, I don't think that people outside that don't follow porn necessarily understand that because there's, like you said, the debate issue um, in itself. I'm not really too interested in that either. But I'm curious, what would be two or three things, I guess, studying, like interviewing 80, over 80 people, producers and performers, um, what would be three things <laughs> that you think your, uh, that the audience just in general would be surprised to hear about as far as porn is concerned um, to sort of signify that this is just a regular job? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that question. I guess I'll, I'll before I answer it, I'll just say one more thing in terms of the reception, which is that I think one of the most um, one of the, the reactions to the book that I've been most kind of proud of is is people from academics, uh, other kinds of workers who aren't porn workers, but who see a reflection of their own uh, experiences of work in the book. And and it was uh, gave a talk at a, a academic library, for example, and the the librarian who who gave the intro said like, oh man, like this feels so much like library work. <laughs> so um, and so I love those moments, and I yeah, I, I care so much more about those audiences than about anti-porn feminists who are invested in their own thing, and um, and so so yeah, there there are so many moments where the porn workers who animate the book are, are kind of gesturing out to readers um, who are differently situated. And I think, you know, there's a, a really like important politics to that too in sex worker organizing where, where sex workers are more and more saying like, sex work is bad in the ways other jobs are bad. What, what if we got together and made them less bad, you know? Um, so that's, that, like, that's so exciting to me. Um, but to your question, of the three, three things that are, that are surprising is what you asked. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess, you know, I, it's hard from like surprising to, to who, I, maybe to like your, you know, kind of um, general imagined reader outside of this world. Um, I think, um, I, I guess I can speak to that for different audiences. Um, I think readers who are, um, are, you know, educated and about and involved with labor politics in straight or non-sex work, um, find themselves surprised by the extent to which, and this is a really tricky thing, but, um, but it's also true that most porn workers would rather not have any boss at all than have a boss that has been, you know, kind of better disciplined by a union or better public policy. Um, and so that that's surprising and also, you know, a challenge to the kinds of organizing that that have been most legible in labor movements. Um, so that's one piece. I think, you know, folks who come to the book most interested in the sexual politics piece. Um, and, and perhaps those who who entered in with with ideas about um, porn and other sex work as like uniquely exploitative, uh, unique places with where consent is uniquely difficult to access, um, might be and have been surprised by the the workers who I quote in the book saying that that the kinds of the murkiness around consent that you feel here isn't so different from the murkiness that a lot of women feel around consent, whether they're getting paid for sex or not. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, that, that many people say they feel more autonomy and more power when they do get paid, um, in part because the conventions of heterosexual life make actually talking about consent really hard. Whereas in sex work, like that is absolutely just an expected part of your workday that you will have these conversations. Um, and so I think that's, that's another thing that might surprise some people. Um, I'm trying to think of a good, a good third one, thinking about the kind of mo- reader, a, a reader who might have the least exposure to this. Um, another thing that might be surprising is that, that sex workers overwhelmingly say that, that they want um, less state intervention and rather than, than to kind of explain themselves in such a way that policymakers will, will understand. And this just comes from a really long historical memory that sex workers have where the state has always time and time again um, sought to regulate sex work in ways that have nothing to do with the well-being of workers. Um, so I don't know, you know, those things aren't surprising to me anymore at this point, but but might be to some listeners. No, I think that those were excellent um, responses because, no, they will be because my audience is pretty international. Mm-hmm. I see a third of the listenership and viewership is outside the United States. Okay. So, um, but we're talking about working class people, professional class, um, yeah. a, a large array of people. And, um, and some of those audiences are going to be more conservative in um, disposition. And um, I think that's the reason why a lot of this um, this politicking that goes on outside of sex work is so effective is because um, they have been able to tap into conservative elements of the country because they know that um, it's just like with any issue, if you're given an issue, if you haven't taken the time to sort of delve into it, mm-hmm. You may just um, repeat what, you know, someone taught you about it, you know, whether it's your parents or whoever it is. And so if you don't have an intimate relationship with that topic, then it's easy for someone to sort of guide the conversation for you. And I feel like with sex, that is already a topic that's very much put on the fringes for whatever mm-hmm. reason, even though it's a very universal thing, um, it's been put on the fringes and people, um, they, under- they know that there's been put on that kind of a pedestal, uh, pushed it aside. But the point you made in the book, you were talking about how it's, um, I mean, it's just like any other job. Um, If anything, the most cool thing about sex work is just the creative loopholes that um, performers have used to, you know, to to help make more money. um, Absolutely. To take advantage of, um, you know, I guess the decentralization of the system. Yeah. I, I thought that, that that was interesting. You said that the porn industry is not really an industry per se. What do you mean by that when you said that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so so this too is just something that that anti-porn feminists and conservatives talk about this like behemoth, well-organized, centralized industry as if there's like one group of like, <laughs> you know, old white men like making decisions and there have been periods in porn's history in which it looks a little more like that um never quite in the way that it's described but but if you look at what what we're actually looking at here it's only fans self-producers who with their iphone in bedrooms across the world are making their own content and right and they're still like obviously 
centralized owners of platforms. Um, like they're, uh, the company that owns Pornhub has a major monopoly. Mm-hmm. All of that's true. But it's the idea that there is an industry with a kind of um, centralized group of workers and managers uh, that are making decisions in a coordinated way it just isn't the case. Um, and I and I can speak to that, you know, not just from the perspective of the the book research, but now I'm on the board of the organization that sets health protocols for the industry. And one of the challenges is like. To whom are we? <laughs> you know, like there's no, uh, it's it's not like the auto industry or something where where like there is um, a body to to which you might make the appeal, mm-hmm. um, and there there are ways that 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 workers can use that, and as you said, um, really creatively to get 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 their money in ways that are really. Um, exciting and there are also ways that the the kind of diffusion of the industry makes it harder to organize i mean this the most obvious is that it it can be harder to organize when you don't actually know your co-workers right i'm curious again just reading the book there, there was just a plethora of information and honestly i urge my audience don't be turned off by the title like you will learn so much from reading this book um, you talk about the history. You start out talking about the history of porn with the golden age in yeah. the 70s and how the, the pay was so low um, back then. But you've also shown the transformation over the years. But you also point out the unfortunate um, disparities, the racial disparities, the sexualized disparities in the industry, which is just like any other workplace um, yeah. in the country. I'm, I'm curious, though, before I get into some of that, I wanted to kind of... Um, not attack, but sort of direct myself towards the whole idea of Marxism in the book itself. Mm-hmm. When I was reading this book, I got one word kept sticking in my head. It wasn't Marxism, even though you used a Marxist sort of like analysis and the terminology and everything else, because I'm pretty familiar with it. I got libertarianism, honestly. Yeah. Um, if I could take one word, it was libertarianism. And and I guess you can, because I identify as a left libertarian uh, mm-hmm. and um, in the libertarian socialist type of vein. And yeah. um, so, and I definitely got a lot of that. I definitely felt, I feel like porn itself is very much a libertarian. Um, the whole idea of like body autonomy, like taking, taking ownership of your body, expressing mm-hmm. your body the way you want to. Um, most of the libertarians that I know don't believe in decriminalizing sex work at all. Um, and it, that's how I guess that's the way I took it. But maybe I'm completely off on it as well. Just like lowering the state's presence. Like to me, that's very much a libertarian type of concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say like a lot of a lot of socialists who are decidedly not libertarians also read sex work politics this way in a negative sense, you know, because they mm-hmm. they see porn workers. And so, you know, I'm repeating what the workers demand and. And I really believe like any kind of socialist politics needs to follow what workers say that they want. In this case, it is, it is less state intervention. Um, so yeah, so some people read that as libertarian and, you know, and I think for, for readers like you, that's not a bad thing. Um, I, for me and I, my politics, um, are, you know, if you do that quadrant thing, right? Um, right. It's, you know, it, it absolutely on the anti-authoritarian left, which is the a kind of language that I prefer 
because I, I think libertarianism like absolutely doesn't make sense as a framework to, to think about redistributive justice. Um, mm. I'm, and I'm not, and so I can speak for myself, but also I think that so much of my own politics come from sex worker organizing and, and the example of the sex workers that I'm inspired by. And there, I think it's not a libertarian uh, critique, but rather a critique of capitalist states rather than, you know, of, of intervention as such. Um, and there's a whole, you know, a whole other conversation, right. About like, do we want a dictatorship of the, the proletariat or, you know, like, is this, is this, are there, is there any kind of state intervention we would welcome? And that's, I think another question, it's something I'm interested in the, my second book, but, um, but for our purposes here, I, I do try to push back in, in the porn workbook, against the idea that this is a libertarian critique. Um, but when, when porn workers are refusing state intervention, they're saying that they don't want the state to come in and solve problems that the state has in fact created, which mm. like certainly some libertarians will feel some kinship there. But I, I think that the contours of the critique are a little bit different. And I guess the, the only other thing I'll say is you're absolutely right. There's a ton of libertarian porn workers and sex workers. Um, I think, you know, for my own part, and this is where like, it's my voice, not just uh, presenting what, what others think. I, I think that there, there are a lot of gaps in that approach, um, most especially where it, it prefers a kind of uh, value neutral entrepreneurialism as a solution uh, mm -hmm. to, to, so, as something that, as you say, you know, is just marked by extreme social inequality. So, um, so all of that's true, uh, which is, I think, a muddled answer to your question. But yeah, I think it is, a, for, for me, what I'm trying to get across is an anti-authoritarian authoritarian left perspective on these problems. I think libertarians will find some moments of that that, that, um, that feel right and, and others that, that will necessarily um, be contradictory yeah but i guess i guess what i would add to that is that i believe that the the libertarians i think that we're talking about i won't say that they've co-opted the word but right original libertarians were not associated with the people that we're talking about mm -hmm. the, the original libertarians were part of the left they mm -hmm. like that's where the tradition came from totally and i think for some reason, people like myself to, that we're almost put on an island because, mm -hmm. but, but and I think it's because people don't the labels are kind of just throwing everyone off, yeah. and they don't know exactly what that is yeah. because it's hard to pinpoint. Um, it's it's like a constant moving target, and you're trying to find you know some kind of consistency, but it's just it yeah. goes away. You know, totally. <laughs> yeah, and then it's like so even in our conversation, like someone could take out an excerpt and, and, you know, make it seem like a support of something that I don't think either of us is, mm -hmm. is supportive of at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, I think that that history is, is really crucial. Um, and there, you know, there are a lot of folks in the, the, I won't say industry, but the, the community such as it is, um, who I think are more attached to, to, I think in this, in the true spirit of libertarian politics, like this, this focus on free speech, um, uh, you know, the history of like Victoria Woodall and like the folks who are thinking about porn from that lens. I don't find that as politically useful. I'm just not that interested in the, the, the content question. Um, but, 
and I, you know, I don't find libertarian politics particularly in either manifestation, particularly valuable for thinking about labor rights. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you're, it's absolutely agree. I mean, it's just hard to even have the conversation because some people use this term and what they really mean is like an anarcho-capitalist perspective. Yep. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's a mess. <laughs> and I definitely don't mean that perspective at all, but um, it, it's just, and another thing with the forum and, and my audience is pretty familiar with it. I tell people just connect the dots yeah. because I bring on all different types of guests. But we sort of operate with a framework like outside of the two-party system. Like that's yeah. pretty much the framework. And we sort of build just topics as like a, a way to sort of coalition build. Mm-hmm. Um, and Or at least I'd be proud just for people to sort of have um, their own autonomy as far as political thought, their own autonomy as far as their, their life is concerned. Um, yeah. at, at least it's you, like you came to that conclusion on your own and you can sort of navigate this difficult um <laughs> environment that we in, that we're in any way you see fit yeah and um that's kind of the purpose and um uh, and i think it's working you know mm-hmm. it takes a long time you have to break down and debunk all these different you know misconceptions but you never debunk it unless you talk to the people yourself you have to talk to the people yeah. directly to get those answers and i was like i said you talked to over 80 people um in the book and you um, highlighted Connor in particular. Um, <laughs> I've seen you do interviews, like you've done so many interviews and, and Connor has been with you. And um, I never got that. I understood the worker part. Is that the reason why you emphasize work so much in the book? Is is that um, to just emphasize the labor part more so than anything else? Because you, I don't think you use porn star at all in the book. Because yeah. Because you made that point known that, relatively speaking, there are not many stars in porn. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just say for, for folks who haven't read the book, this is Connor Habib, uh, just in case you want to look him up. <laughs> um, uh, he's also a podcaster and a, a sex worker theorist and activist. Um, and um, yeah, and features heavily in the book. So so Kiko's talking about this moment in the, in the introduction where, um, where at the end of our interview, Connor corrects me having used the the term foreign worker um, throughout, uh, which is a a term that a lot of people um, that I interviewed appreciated, but he said like, hey, why aren't you using porn star? And I said, I explained why this is a a worker lens, a labor lens. Um, And he said, yeah, but I don't want to be, or he's as he, the direct quote is, I'd rather be a constellation than a worker. Um, And he's an anti-capitalist thinker. And then Mm -hmm. later, this was when we met, I think in 2014, and then we became friends. And later as the book got closer to publication, he said like, hey, I want you to add something because I don't actually think that in quite the same way anymore. So his own ideas changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some way, it, like this, this friendship developed where we changed each other's ideas about it. Um, and, and he started to think about it as he puts it, and I quote this in the book, you know, we should claim worker, to, the term worker in order to misuse it. Um, which I think is really beautiful. And then, you know, for my part, what shifted is that I stopped wanting to tell a story about like porn is work like any other, which is kind of what I wanted to do initially to correct the stigma and say like, this is just a job, but it's really not for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's something that, you know, in Connor's language, uh, he says, 
you know, I give, and he's no longer performing, but I, I give and receive pleasure, not misery. Work is giving and receiving misery, which is just like such a, an incredible um, rejoinder to this whole like manufactured debate. Uh, and I'm so, I'm much more interested in where that gets us rather than like, yeah, is this exploitation or not? Of course it is. All work is like what mm-hmm. next? And I think he's getting us to the what next. Yes, I like that for sure. Um, yet that was that never went in my mind reading it. But like you said, I mean, depending on who you talk to, I mean, work is exploitative. I mean, yeah. and that's but that's the cool thing I got out of it um, is you have that in any industry. I mean, right. this is no different. When I read this book, I was genuinely trying to learn more just generally as far as far as information like I almost forgot for a second that we were even talking about form work <laughs> when I was reading the book I was like okay this is you know it's pretty boring stuff that they do and just I thought the way you described the inner workings of um just like a, a set was interesting um just with supplying the lubricants um how certain studios are under under budgeted like if you talk about some of the black performers right um, the interracial dynamic, how it's only used for black men with non-black um, women performers, like that's a terminology in itself. Like that stuff is really interesting, and but it also shows a lot of the disparities in porn and how it's it also has a long way to go when it comes to like equity. Absolutely, I mean, and I think part of what I find so frustrating about uh, the conversation more broadly is that like people who think porn is uniquely hierarchical and exploitative exist in their own lives, rely on exactly these forms of, of racist exploitation. So, you know, like, like the same people who, and and like, this is absolutely a problem. It should absolutely be criticized, but people use like that information to say that porn is terrible and then turn around during a pandemic and hire an overwhelmingly black workforce to do their grocery shopping for them on Instacart for pennies. I mean, and, and feel okay about that because people's clothes stay on. And so, you know, I'm like, I'm interested in revealing the, the racist inequality of the porn industry for sure, which is something that, that um, my dissertation advisor, Marie Miller Young's book, A Taste for Brown Sugar does in a historical and, and contemporary vein, just really beautifully for folks who are interested. Um, but but I, I'm equally interested, right, in revealing those conditions and also like throwing it back on people who think who like to pretend it's unique, um, which I think is just such an insidious aspect of anti-sex work ideas it's that it allows people to feel okay about the the kinds of exploitation they experience and 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 participate in and perpetuate. Um, and the historical, you know, version of that is all of these white reformer feminists who were like absolutely in a lather about prostitution and mm-hmm. who were going uh down to to you know pick up black women day labor um, maids paying them nothing with terrible working conditions um high incidence of sexual assault by their own husbands i mean so all of this and it's these same people feeling uh, absolutely righteous in their practices, um, and also uh, righteous in their their exceptionalizing of of the sex industry. 
No doubt. I guess before we go back to that, I wanted to also point out that, um, again, I think the descriptive element is, um, I don't know if that was your intention, just by describing what actually happens, like on the porn sets themselves, is like such a um, monotonous type of like routine. That was definitely my intention, yeah. <laughs> it's just, but I think, I, I guess that lowers the inhibitions of people who may have these like loaded kind of thoughts mm-hmm. um, approaching porn. I think that's a, the only, the best way to do that is just to simply describe what's going on. And just, I don't think people, if if that was the case, everyone would be in porn if it was easy. It's not an easy job. No, it's hard. Um, it's just like in, in every job has a, a set of skills. And some of these sets take hours. I was, I was surprised to, to re- learn about that myself. I mean, I think you described one of them, like it took us up to five hours. I mean, I don't know if that's because of travel and everything else, but um, just these people performing throughout the day, like multiple times. And just think, I mean, having to like have an erection or whatever it is, I mean, like this is work. This is not something that anyone can just do. And no. and I thought that, that was important, just the detail that you went into as far as describing what these people go through. Thanks. Yeah, I want to kind of drop the reader into the, like the boringness of the set. I think some people, you know, pick up books about porn and want their own titillating experience like you know and uh, I tried to do the opposite so um but yeah I mean it could be five hours and 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 I as a recent PhD you have this memory too of like what it feels like to get paid the same amount regardless of whether your work takes an hour or 10 I mean and so when that's the case whether it's like uh grading papers or shooting a scene Mm -hmm. uh management has no incentive to make your work less burdensome or more efficient. Um, The pay is exactly the same. And, you know, graduate workers are on strike all over the country for exactly this reason. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just, I just mentioned that as, you know, another, like I, I, as I was writing that when I was a graduate student and I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is exactly it. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm curious, but again, a lot of what you describe in the book is, um, it talks about um, gradient scales. Um, so, so you're 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 exploiting the contradictions in porn in a way because um, it is portrayed. I think once you're like you've accepted it, the premise that like porn is like this is something that I want to gravitate towards. There is um, this dark side of porn, um, and it, a lot of it is the just the the levelings of people. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to hear that gay performers made so much compared to other groups um, and, and white females and, and the gay demographics, especially um, compared to like some of the other performers is such a disparity in the page. Yeah. And um, is that only because of um, what the market is saying or is that also because of internalized features in porn itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so first I'll just say that here for listeners, we're talking about about kind of more traditional studio model of porn. Things get are absolutely hierarchized, but in a different way when we're thinking about self-produced scenes on like OnlyFans. So, so I'll answer the question um, in terms of of you know where you have agents, producers, directors making the decision. Um, and yeah, the disparities are huge. 
they all say, and when I asked them, they said, oh yeah, it's the market. Or they always talk about like this kind of symbolic, like racist white consumer. And they always say like, oh, in the South or in like, well, now I live in Missouri. So it's always like the Midwest, right? So there's this like other person responsible for these racist disparities. It's, they never acknowledge they're they're making the decision of course which is much like managers elsewhere um but but this argument actually doesn't hold up at all because the market such as it is for what's called like interracial or urban content is huge those those scenes in traditional the, the numbers again are hard to get now because of of the dissemination and like so but we know this in terms of even download um numbers for stuff on like Pornhub, uh, the market, the consumer interest in these scenes is very high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still black performers are paid so much less. So it just really is not, it doesn't make sense in terms of this is part of why like classical economics is a lie because it's actually like, that's not how any mar- labor markets work, but they're, they're cross cut by, by racism in all these sorts of ways. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's not the market. And again, you know, um, Dr. Miller Young's book um, gets at this um, in a much um, more dedicated way, thinking about like, like the, as she, right, the taste for brown sugar, like there's a taste for this, there is a, a demand. And yet these, the, the women performers that, that she um, interviewed and looks at historically are just time and time again, find that their, their labor is demanded and yet not not compensated. You also have within the porn industry, um, like the door video news, and right. I know that they have their big awards ceremonies. And, and to me, I I make the I make the comparison with like the Grammys or the Oscars yeah. or the Emmys. I think it was just this past one, um, the first black female won the adult video news award out of all those years. I think this this is the first year that a black performer, even one, a black female had won. So it it shows that, um, no, there's definitely a hierarchy in place um, when it comes to um, the the actual, I guess the inner workings of of porn, um, the consumerism aspect of it. Um, There's a, there's a a lack of recognition it's really a, it's a human rights thing. And I think you said Lexington still pointed this out. Um, and Prince Yeshua, I think is the way you pronounce his name, um, one of the performers. And um, I, I think the Black performers are very conscious of this. And they just sort of roll with the punches um, because they know, I guess, they know what they're getting into as far as that's concerned. Like, it's no different in the world that they were in before they got into porn. Um in a way that's disincentivizing, I guess, in a way it de-incentivizes um, Black performers wanting to get into porn because um, in that way it's very closed off, I guess, as far as the mindset. Like, how do you change those mindsets within the industry? Um, I know I know you proposed something, a, a scenario where if the pay rates were the same for everybody, mm-hmm. there would still be people complaining about no, but I'm making more numbers than everyone else and yeah. you make that point in the book as well yeah and again now like even that proposal makes no sense because because people are working 
not entirely, but often with, you know, without management. And then, so there, they're, they're subject to algorithmic racism, which is a different, but no less crushing problem. Um, I think to your question about, you know, whether this disincentivizes black performers from taking on porn work, I think it often doesn't for the same reason that, that lots of people do, which is that like, as you say, these, these hierarchies exist everywhere. Um, and I think, you know, for folks wanting to read a first person uh, account of this, um, Tyler Knight's memoir is really wonderful. He's a, a black performer um, who writes about, there's just one moment um, in the memoir where he, he starts to, to um, he's part of it is tracking, like he's trying to retire from the porn industry. Um, and he talks about like the kind of office jobs that might be available, which were, you know, absolutely like subject to all sorts of, of racist, both microaggressions and, you know, pay inequality and all of that. But he also just talks about like, now I have to like ask someone's permission to pee, like these kinds of daily <laughs> degradations, which, yeah. you know, obviously all workers experience some version of that, but the ways that that, that gets cross cut by racism um, are impossible to overestimate. And so, uh, so it doesn't actually disincentivize. And in fact, often like racism in, in straight or non-sex work jobs pushes people toward sex work because even though there are all of these racist hierarchies, there's sometimes a little bit more room to maneuver. Mm. Um, and yet, and the, you hit like, you know, the same, the same kinds of, um, you know, uh, systems on the other side too. So that's, that's the double bind for sure. I have um, two more questions um, for you. One's more or less a burning question. And the other one is more about something that you highlighted um, pretty extensively towards the end of the book. Um, sure. The first question has to do is, do you self-identify as a Marxist? Yes. Okay. So with that in mind, where do you see the problems with the intersection of racism and Marxism? Because um, yes. that's something that I've had to grapple with. Like I'm a leftist, but I've always, I've almost divorced myself from any kind of a terminology when it comes to like socialism, Marxism, not because of stigma, but simply because I don't know if I quite understand it just based on my lived experiences. Yeah. And I think that's where, um, sort of like the Marx was a was a white Jewish guy in Europe in the 1850s or whatever. I think that's kind of what messes with my head some. Mm -hmm. Like to me, there's really a disconnect because it's still, it's always re referring back to something back then. I understand that it has an impact now, but I feel like that there's limitations within um, thought when you talk about race and class, what will you see those potential problems um, as a Marxist? And even just within navigating the idea of porn work and seeing the racist elements, even when you were doing the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think similar, like to go call back to our conversation about the language of libertarianism is like, like we call ourselves things so that we can try to find uh, our, com our intellectual and political community, but the words don't mean this, you know, so there are a lot of Marxists who would not claim me and a lot of Marxists I would not claim. I'm, I'm a bad Marxist in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, and so anything like Orthodox Marxism, I have no interest in. Um, and so I, I don't mean to get too jargony for listeners, but like there's, no, no, there's all sorts of, of, um, 
of camps <laughs> like within folks. And, and I, I think in some ways it's not that helpful to like use even, as you say, like Marxism suggests this kind of um, fealty to this one white guy, which is like not the point. Um, and he had a ton of, of, um, of things that he missed um, around, around race, around gender, around uh, informal labor with, which, you know, is linked to his, uh, his lack of racial analysis. So all of that is true. I'm not that interested in, I mean, I do find Marx himself useful sometimes, but it's, it's really not the point. Um, I, I'm in conversation with people who, for a lot of different reasons, use Marx to make sense of the, the very specific other, uh, objects, right. You know, so like, Angela Davis reads Marx to make sense of, of a totally different moment. And I find mm -hmm. her reading more useful than the original. Um, but we still call ourselves Marxists for some reason, right? You know, um, <laughs> and I, you know, there's just so many black radical thinkers who have done like things with Marx that, that again, I find much more useful for our contemporary moment, not, not just because of like diversity or whatever in an amorphous sense, but because like these analyses speak better to the conditions of late capitalism. And, and I would say also to Marx's own moment, like, <laughs> you know, um, it's just a truer picture of what capitalism does. Um, mm -hmm. what, what black radical thinkers call, call racial capitalism. Like that's what we're working against. Um, so, yeah, I did. the name is like, I think kind of muddling in some ways, but um, but does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. No, it does, um, for sure. I, I think it's one of, I think it's something that's conscious, even within the orthodoxy of Marxism. And that's the reason why it's avoided a lot of times. Um, yeah. These conversations have come up a lot recently. I say in the past 20, 25 years in Cuba, for instance, um, like I really studied Cuba, like that's one of my main countries to focus. And this question comes up a lot, talking to black people in Cuba and just um, that whole question of giving into the revolution. But what does that mean when you give into something? What else has been left out? And, mm -hmm. and this question always comes up, the whole idea of race, where does this fit in? as far as the cause is concerned, um, it's always a big thing, you know, how to balance this. It's a constant balancing act, regardless yeah. of the being socialism, capitalism, Marxism, whatever it is. Um, you mentioned SESTA in the book, and I want the listeners to know what that is and how has that affected the industry as we know it today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so in some ways the, the story kind of comes to a close or my research comes to a close around... Um, the passage of Pasta Sesta, which in 2018 um, were, were laws in, in, um, at the federal level that the, the short version is that they, they made it so much harder for sex workers broadly, not just porn workers, but for sex workers broadly to use the internet, to share information with each other, to advertise their own services and for in-person sex workers to screen clients for safety. Um, so all of these things were as sex worker, anti-sex worker law always is, 
um, presented under the rubric of anti-trafficking, but not actually about trafficking. There's some debate about that, whether like lawmakers were just really clumsy and were trying to do something good. I don't think so. I don't think anyone's like that dumb, <laughs> but, um, and, and, you know, sex workers had spent months leading up to this lobbying Congress and educating, uh, representatives about why this was going to make people more vulnerable. And so I just can't believe that this was just like an error. I think that, that um, as the sex worker theorist, Irene Silt says, like, the state has always wanted sex workers dead. For me, this is like another in that, in that uh, long history, another episode in that longer history. So, um, and in the intervening years, there, there have been just increasing listeners are probably, you know, maybe have seen um, con conversations around payment processors refusing to process payments um, for online porn. There's just, it's just one thing after another that sex workers are having to, to navigate a new crisis all the time. Mm -hmm. And, and these laws and false assessments, just one example of this, um, again, they overwhelmingly make the work less safe. Uh, they give, they take away workers' power, and they undermine the strategies that workers have used to protect themselves. Um, and and that, that's really it. There's there's like no um, factual other side. <laughs> Again, it's not like there's no debate to be had. That's what they do. And the the journalist Melissa Garrett Grant. Um, talks about how in the years since its passage, FOSTA-SESA has resulted in one single trafficking prosecution. Like one, oh, and I, yeah. you know, I'm a prison abolitionist. I don't think prosecutions are evidence of something having worked, <laughs> but if the object was to reduce trafficking, it has just spectacularly failed. Mm -hmm. And thousands of sex workers are, are worse off because of it people are dead because of it. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where I'll leave it. It's like, it's a failure at what it said it wanted to do and a real success if what is actually happening here. And, and I think that this is the case and I don't mean to sound conspiratorial, but like all the evidence no, suggests no. that the point was to hurt sex workers. No, there's nothing wrong with being conspiratorial. Uh, <laughs> that's also been turned into a bad word. Um, right. <laughs> um, no, I, I definitely agree agree with those sentiments about the intentionality behind um, the laws, yeah. for sure. Especially with these politicians, they know they're, they're very much anti-sex work, um, anti um, anti human rights in general. Um, right. As long as it means just keeping out all the power within, you know, and not spreading any of that. Um, productivity for the workers themselves and you know us sharing all that stuff together um you know they want to take extract everything from us and keep it for themselves and this seems to be the common link but professor berg i want to say thank you for joining us and is there like in case a viewer or a listener had a question what would be the most effective quickest way to get in touch with you um yeah minimize like if uh, men porn viewers do not email me, me wanting to discuss <laughs> this happens all the time people are like hello I'm very lonely um, oh, I have really? questions <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm sorry about that no okay. it's not your fault no no I'm, I'm also I'm, I'm also joking I can ignore the emails but I'm okay. just saying if, if your questions are of that nature pay someone to do this <laughs> yeah so, yeah 
Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, folks can find me, um, probably the easiest way is at Dr. Heather Berg on Twitter. Well, that's, that's revealing in itself though, that, um, that happens yeah, as much as those. that's really enforced that, that never even came across my head, but it's, yeah. it's, I think a, a casualty of being a woman academic, you, you get this stuff. Um, and it's not even, you know, necessarily creepy, but just like folks feeling entitled to your, uh, energy mm, so mm, I got you yeah. but but I'm happy to answer well, I hope, like hopefully for my listener and viewership no 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 I'm I'm also just joking yeah <laughs> that's good but yeah I had such a great time and um we'd be open to having you back on down the road too because I know you're working on other projects as well and um we'd be glad to have you back and um this was a great episode 46 a lot of information um I urge my listeners to go buy porn work and um, I think you're going to learn a lot. You're not going to be disappointed um, in what you see in the book. But I want to say thank you again, Heather, for coming out to the show. And beautiful people, uh, episode 47, we, we're going to talk with Medea Benjamin from Cold Pink. We're going to talk about her new book, um, War in Ukraine, Making Sense um, Out of a Senseless War. And, um, and Norm Finkelstein is going to join us tomorrow to talk about his new book. And then next week, we have Sarah Walk. And my dad's going to be on episode 50 to close season two of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. Um, have a great rest of your day, beautiful people. And we will talk soon. Cheers. Thanks so much for having me.